you're listening to a night dream the night dream podcast Welcome to episode 20 of the Night Dream Podcast, Manifesto. I'm really excited to have a piece by guest writer Juliet Jacks. I've been following her writing for a long time and I'm honoured to have her as a guest on the podcast. In her words, she writes, short fiction as well as journalism, essays and criticism on literature, film, art, music, politics, gender, sexuality and football. If you haven't read any of her work, I'd recommend starting with her memoir or short story collection, Variations, to start with. Her new novella, Monaco, is out now. I've just ordered a copy and can't wait to read it. I'll link her website in the episode description. The first night dream is called A Manifesto for the Unseen by Juliet Jacks. You sat in those gardens most weekday afternoons in the early autumn and late spring. In the summer, you went back to your parents, despite hating your hometown. You always said you couldn't stand hot weather, the pressure to have fun, and just wanted to be on your own. Your pen and paper weren't quite an anachronism. Some of the students had their own laptops, but they were too heavy to carry around, and you said you'd never stop writing your manifestos by hand. You wouldn't reveal their content, at least not exactly, and maybe no one ever saw them, but you were convinced they were going to change the world. At the dawn of the 21st century, though, you were reading your way into the 20th, the Russian futurists rather than the Italians, because, you said, you wanted revolution rather than reaction. The end of the Soviet dream, just over a decade earlier, didn't seem to register with any of your fellow students which you said was strange given that it was the defining event of their young lives, and sad given how much it had narrowed their horizons, even if they didn't realise it like you did. More than anything, you wanted to find a way to break out of boredom, and forming a band hadn't worked. That was the only time you mentioned any new form of creativity since the Second World War, though and it seemed like you were just setting yourself up to fail like the modern authors you revered, and not to fail better. At least the names of those interwar writers killed by militias or dictatorships would survive the talentless apparatchiks who snuffed them out, you said, and their work still made a difference to people. But when a course mate told you, in those dreamy, doomy weeks as our finals started and the war broke out, despite your protests against it, that you were not intelligent enough to succeed where the people you read had failed and died slowly, been killed by the state, or resorted to that fatal dead end of red terrorism. You just shrugged, as if to say, pessimistically, we'll see. After graduation, you moved to a different city at the other end of the country and cut ties with everyone. It was still the case back then, just about that losing contact was the passive option. It was impossible to imagine you on Facebook or MySpace a few years later, 
just casually keeping in touch with anyone who visited your profile. It's understandable and unsurprising. However you saw yourself, other people viewed you as lost, sad or strange. Nobody ever heard of you dating or could imagine you in a relationship. Nobody even heard you express an interest in anyone. Only your complaints about your Saturday job in a bookshop. You must have kept writing. Poetry, diaries, short stories. Perhaps you even published them in tiny journals. Maybe you chose a pseudonym, referencing one of your inspirations, using your sharp sense of humour that few people saw and even fewer got. But how on earth did you make a living? And how did you live beyond the rarefied confines of the campus? People looked for your writing, your manifestos, your name for years in vain. They searched for you online, convinced that you must have done something, even if that was going mad or killing someone, most likely yourself. But surely that would show up on Google, even if it was just a brief report in a local paper. But no, nothing for your name and manifesto, or anything else for that matter. You wouldn't have settled into a normal life. You always said there was no point. But where were you? Had you changed your identity? Found a way to do something in secret? Or simply vanished? You were always fascinated by people who disappeared, after all. At least a decade ago, a dream of you. In a national garden, alone, at night, a light aircraft flew overhead, towards a monument, which had its back to me, but I knew it was a view. The plane crashed, the statue went up in flames. There were no ashes, nothing. Its meaning was obvious, not just the burning ambition, but you blazing into the ether, after you went from being someone who everyone talked about all the time, to someone no one had even thought about for years. At a tiny London gallery, years later, a manifesto for the unseen. Its tone felt familiar, full of contradictions, declamatory yet self-effacing, witty yet deadly serious, proudly anonymous, yet clearly written by an irrepressible ego. Was it you? One of those collectives that's actually just one person, at least to start. Hopefully becoming a movement, if you find that rare thing. People who don't just share your view of the world, but also your conception of how to change it. It talks about the power of refusing an online presence and of working in secret, hinting at the surveillance culture that came with the war on terror telling people not to do the deep state work for it via social media use, and how dismantling Web 2.0 would make a better world. It shouldn't just be old white men like Pynchon or Salinger who were allowed to reject visibility, declared the manifesto, but anyone, everyone who was oppressed by it. This was the first step towards creating a future that would generate a communist manifesto of what is to be done, or a revolution of everyday life for our time raising the same questions as Marx and Engels, Lenin, or the Situationists, and producing answers for the 21st century, and reverse the disastrous inequality that came with the failure of socialism, 
unencumbered by an intellectual terrain dominated by those great men who haunted your history degree. In another contribution, it was distributed online, with no names and no contacts. Asked who wrote it, the gallery attendant just shrugged, and nobody responded to emails about its author, most likely on your instructions, if indeed it was you, setting yourself up to fail through being untraceable. Looking for you on Facebook was pointless, although one could almost imagine you on Twitter, one of those anonymous far-left weirdos with a cartoon avatar and a pun on some obscure Marxist theorist for a handle, or maybe even on Instagram, posting nothing with a human face. If you are on there, hopefully you'll be left alone. If you are still living and still writing, it doubtless depends on that solitude. Who knows if you'll ever read this, but it's so unsettling to think that now you will still only be 40 years old. As an undergraduate, you were determined to die long before that, actually die, but only after you've done something, as the tiny circle of people who invested in you in your small suburban hometown hoped you would, and not just have the symbolic death of obscurity. You always carried a paperback, often Kafka or Nietzsche, which struck at the tantalising nature of those authors who died or were killed young. What didn't they get to write? What weren't they able to publish? What did they decide not to even keep, if they even got to make that decision? What were the ethics of their friends defying their dying wishes for destruction? If you're still around, most likely you wish that you weren't that you were living in an age in which you might write yourself into a heroic death. But replicating those legends in another time, and not being purged but merely ignored, seems like the feeblest form of failure, and far too simple for someone who always had to make life difficult for themselves. Power just ignores writers now, you said, having realised that allowing criticism to be aired but to ignore it setting up structures to ensure its marginalisation, was easier and far more effective than killing heretics, allowing the veneer of democracy to be maintained. You said Camus saved your life, long before you got to your hall of residence, but you didn't think the existentialist conclusion that life was pointless was an endpoint in itself. Rather, it was liberating. If everything meant nothing, then you could do anything. Perhaps it wasn't fair to demand that you do something. Maybe that pressure didn't help you to write meaning into your life, or into life in general. Or to work out how writing might change the world in the new millennium. On those terms, it's no wonder that you should want to fail, better or not. The question of whether you did something is no less absurd than any other. And I can't imagine anything you'd hate more than a monument to you. The next night dream is called Crawling Manifesto. You must crawl. Crawl all day. Crawl until you get where you need to go. Crawl on your hands and knees. Crawl home from work. Crawl into the arms of a loved one. Crawl into my office. You're late. Crawl through the door of your fish and chip shop, 
collecting grease from the tiled floor onto your belly. Crawl through the crawl space of a series of houses in America, passing underneath each house, arousing no suspicions from their occupants. Crawl through layers of soil and rock into the centre of the earth and out through the other side. Crawl through the air into clouds. Crawl into space and onto the surface of the moon. Crawl through the shoulder-width legs of your colleagues. Crawl into bravery. Crawl out of the dentist chair, sucking the blood from your swollen gums. Crawl all day until you can't crawl any longer. Only then you should crawl into bed. Crawl in your dreams. Wake up hungry, with the prize-winning attitude of someone who could crawl anywhere. The next night dream is called Primeval Curse Manifesto. The cost of living is too high. Your life is difficult and mostly unpleasant. Poised as you are with high expectations for what life should be. Your material conditions and constantly long weeks at work make your days off into funerals for what they should have been. Your body is dying for revenge against your boss, their boss, your boss's boss's boss, and anyone who benefits from what you do for them, while systematically giving nothing back in return. You put your shoes on and walk to the nearest shop, a 24-hour petrol station on a busy stretch of road nearby. You buy four beers and a hot Cornish pasty, which is wet but also incredibly hot. Entranced, you eat it, destroying the inside of your mouth, and on the way home you notice a pile of fur, bones and skin, an animal so dead that you can't really tell what it is, but you scoop it up from the road into the plastic bag with your beers and the pastry wrapper, You reassure the dead animal that you are both going on a journey. On the way back, you take a detour to the pub near your house, where you empty all of the ashtrays into your bag. You pour indiscriminately, and some of the ashes get onto your hands and trousers, purifying, sanctifying the bag and your body. When you get home, you feel a distant worry call out to you about what your housemates might think. This stops when you peer inside the empty living room and remember that you're the only person in your house who works weekends. Back on track, you pour the contents of your bag into a pile on the kitchen floor and start mixing the ash from the pub with the shared jams and condiments from your fridge. You go upstairs to grab your laptop, stopping by the bathroom to get your toothbrush which you use to guide the sludge on the floor into symbols that jump dynamically into your head. Sitting in the middle, you use both arms to scoop the remains of the animal next to you against one leg, hoping to reassure it, warming it nearer to life with the heat of your crossed legs. You drink the four beers while busily painting more symbols, some big, some small, each one different and exciting. Preparations complete, you move slowly around the house, carefully selecting ornaments and things to become vestments. Stripping naked, you pull a bin bag over you, making holes for your head and arms. You are drawn to its colour, a murky petrol so black that you might shimmer incorporeal between worlds. For your head, you design a crown, pushing candles into the gaps in your bicycle helmet 
You light them before putting it on. Guided by light, you sit down, back in the middle of your circle, and bite down onto both gums, tasting the ashy, sweet, savoury mix. And you call upon all things that can and can't be thought of, which sing back to you the same thought you had while trying to sleep. You must recognise that there is nothing that the world by people can give you that you would want. You hear them and answer into your laptop, which you hold up to your mouth, open just enough for you to whisper into. When you finish making your demands, you crack the laptop open, breaking its back and killing it instantly. The world must be remade or end. The next night dream is called Concrete Manifesto. Ownership is now a process. The goal of this process is to cover everything. You must attempt to cover everything. Cover things, cutting them off from what they were, cementing them and their image into the past. Baptize what is good so that it might remain, eventually creating a tableau of everything you own of what you deem worthy to remain whole and properly encased. Everything else must be fragmented, snapped, broken into pieces, added to strengthen the mix that will encase everything good. Although this might sound overwhelming, it's easy to begin changing the world. Start by buying sand and aggregate. Quickly mix up a batch in your home. There should be instructions on the side of the bag. Now find a shoebox or Tupperware and fill it with anything small or sentimental you can find. Jewellery, bottle openers, diary, maybe a matchbox from a hotel. These are all good candidates, but only you can choose which items will propel you into a newness. Dig a big hole in the ground and push your furniture in or find an existing hole. Many exist in nature and there are many holes made by people. Fill your house or flat with cement. Allow the slurry to capture parts of your life and to hold them for you. Fill bin bags with books and secure them in concrete to be read in the future. Eventually, everything must be broken or covered. The tapestry of what is broken remains to be seen and learnt from. What cannot be seen is venerated, immobile, stalwart, unlasting. Keep covering until it is just you and your memories. The next night dream is called 40 Centimeter Manifesto. You notice that things are busier than usual as you leave your house. Your neighbor runs towards you, waving their arms at you. They are killing anyone who can't jump high enough, they shout at you as they keep running past you to their front door. They have guns and weird flags and they're stopping people in the street. And your neighbour points down the road to a group of cars, driving slowly, taking up both sides of the street. You look back towards your neighbour who's disappeared into their house. You see the convoy stopped by a bus stop. The convoy is made up of all kinds of people, You can't help but watch as what looks like a fireman, a lady in a suit and a middle-aged man in lycra, force an elderly couple 
off the bench inside the bus stop and push at them with the ends of guns and long sticks into the middle of the road. Jump or die reverberates from the speaker on top of a police car. It's so easy, anyone can do it. Everyone here has. And you watch as one of the couple is shoved forwards, separated towards an orange cone. Jump or die rings out again over the tannoy. You turn and quickly start walking away. Trying not to look back, you stop as the sound of gunshots ring out over the suburbs. You run now, trying your best to figure out how things got like this. The moment of escalation. Or even better, the early moment that could have stopped the idea. You hear another round of gunshots. It's too much. You climb into a hedge and weep. For yourself, the couple, your neighbour. The chants get louder, and knowing it's too late to leave, you're sick into your hands. Jump or die, closer now. Jump or die. And you hear it now, just outside the bush, as a stick parts the branches, revealing the face of your local MP, who slams the stick into your stomach. Many hands grab at you, tearing you out of the undergrowth. Please, you whisper, as they stand you up against your will. Indifferent to your suffering, they gesture towards the cone. Jump or die. Jump or die repeats in a softer tone, and you look around towards the voice, your neighbour, whose hand rests on your shoulder. Jump or die, he says kindly. The next night dream is called The Great Replacement Manifesto. You wake up one morning with an incredible new idea, an idea that lets you take action against your biggest fears. People, like you, are causing catastrophic harm to the environment. People, like yourself, are taking over, taking too much space from other species, destroying their habitats to make things and to build things. You open your laptop and start typing. You need a place to live, and things to fill it with. You, like me, don't care where these things come from, or the collective interspecies suffering that it takes to make them. Things can and must be better. Things must change now. You must change. Into an animal. Each person a different animal. Take your human ambition and reframe it. Move to the North Pole. Live briefly on sheet ice. Bolster the diminishing population of polar bears, who for a long time have made peace with the fact that it is rare for them to live to thirty. Their life is your big question of the shallow longevity of the planet. It does not matter to them. So swim, kill seals, become the apex predator of a vast, inhospitable land. The world is ending. Lie down in the dirt and become a worm. Thrash around, eating soil, until you give up or get eaten by a bird. You don't like mud? Become a cow. You'll live longer, grazing and shitting, until you have to lie down, and can't get up, or the world ends. It's hard to think about, and easy to understand the struggle to give up ownership, so don't. Become a beaver, with friends, and enjoy building your beaver mansion. Build hundreds of interconnecting rooms, until all rivers dry up and there's nothing left to dam. Then you've won. 
you can go out in style, and if that sounds too sedentary for you, then become a horse. Run free on the plains, never look back at what is or what you've left behind. You can really, for a short while, be anything. You should, and for people who won't or choose not to, their society will fall apart and they will become short-lived custodians, forced to watch us flourish and die. The next night dream is called Upright Manifesto. Sleep in a fireplace, standing upright, or be prepared to never leave your bed. There's only ever been these two choices to make. Climb to the top of a bell tower and stand underneath the bell, holding the clapper close to you, swaying with it in celebration, a shared moment of kineticism. There will be moments in the dark where you will want to lie down. You mustn't. Instead, treat yourself to a calming time hanging from a ladder, heading underground with an air of mystery, or maybe leant against the side of a house nestling into ivy. Here, there really is no choice. If you let go of the ladder, that is it for you. Your unwillingness to commit will be your final act, your last intention on this earth. And if all of this sounds too passive, then you should walk. Walk up a hill, into a shop, it doesn't matter. And when you get tired of walking, find a bar to lean against and have a drink. Nothing too strong, but something to ease you into a storeroom or a closet. Somewhere safe to catch some much-needed shut-eye. Grab a bite to eat at the station cafe. Stand on a packed train to Central. Stand in the lift to the top of the tallest building and look out. When the time comes, and it will, try to be standing. The next night dream is called Pre-Fight Manifesto. It's seven nights before the biggest fight of your career. You've been training all year, and in many ways, for your entire life. You're closer to yourself than you've ever been, each bout becoming numerical, a fixture. No exertion surprises you. Hours earlier, you met your opponent for the first time in person, and it surprised you to see them moving freely, separate to all of their previous fights that you've watched on repeat again and again. In the press conference, you told the world that you'd squash them like a big insect, like a sad ant under your boxing glove. You promised that by the end of round one, you'd have them limping like a half-squished spider. Your gloves would spell death for their career. To your knowledge, nobody before you had wanted it more, sacrificed more, worked more. You told the press that you box all day, and when you sleep, you dream of boxing, ducking, weaving sleepily through all kinds of deadly punches. At one point, you looked at the camera and told it that in your city, the wind makes a different, sorer noise. It asked you to stop shadowboxing, but you told it that you couldn't, which is why there have been so many storms recently. At one point, you remember looking at your opponent and knowing that you can't lose. On the night of the fight, you step into the ring and tell the world that the fight is off and that in this moment, not fighting would mean more to you. 
The next night dream is called Your Child is a Weapon. You are pregnant and give birth to a gun. Guns are illegal where you live, so you bundle the gun up into blankets and leave the hospital. You ask your partner how any child can be illegal, and they stare blankly through the windscreen as you escape. You sense they would rather have been a boy. You carried the gun for nine months and understand its needs wordlessly. It is, after all, a beautiful gun. You stroke the chamber, and finding it cold, pull the gun into your chest. You've taken to carrying your child in a little shoulder bag. It isn't the relationship you imagined, but you're comforted by its presence. Leaving work late, you miss the bus and decide to just walk instead of waiting 15 minutes for another one. It's already been dark for hours and you're used to it, but you don't like it. You walk up a dingy set of stairs onto the start of a large bridge. Two men finish crossing the bridge but walk towards you. One of them tells you not to worry that they are undercover policemen who have had a report in the area of someone dangerous. You ask to see proof, which they say they have but seem reluctant to show you. You fear the men who might be police officers, and they speak to you with total conviction, but their actions seem indifferent to your fear. Eventually, one of the men asks to see into your bag, which you decline. You tell the man that you're walking home from work, it's late, and you just want to be gone from this bridge. The last pretense of emotion disappears from his face, and he says that if you don't open your bag, they will have to arrest you. You aren't complying, so the man takes out a pair of handcuffs and smiles, about to begin a practice speech about how it is in your interest to comply for everyone's safety. And you step back, grabbing your child from the bag in the same way that you would play with them at home. Fearful now, one man turns to run away, and the other, thinking they can snatch the child from your hand, rushes towards you. So you do something you've never done and squeeze the trigger as if squeezing a little hand to reassure them. After a loud noise, the man lies flat on the floor, the back of his head disappeared, his partner gone. So it has happened, the worst thing you didn't think could ever happen. You have no plan, so you begin to swaddle your child, wrapping them tightly before placing them into a sealed bag that you kept in case you had to hide your child in the cistern at work. So you kiss your child, assuring them that things will be okay, before you throw them into the fast-flowing river. As you slowly walk home, you hope that they will be fine. The next night dream is called Filling the Tub Manifesto. Any time that you cried while living with your parents, they would guide you upstairs into the bathroom, position you over the bathtub and console you while your tears dripped into the tub. They started doing this when you were very young, so you didn't ask any questions. And as you grew up, you were fine with taking short, fast showers in the solemn presence of the tub. Eventually, you were old enough to escort yourself to the tub, and cry alone about whatever it was that bothered you so much that week. One night you come back from a house party and drain the bath of tears. You move out and don't speak to your family for years. 
Eventually, they reach out to you on social media, and you meet your mum for a coffee at her house. She puts the kettle on and excuses herself. You can hear her upstairs, crying in the bathroom. The next night dream is called Kill Your Neighbour Manifesto. Spiritually, you are standing at the edge of a field of barley, fingering the shoots as they sway in an imagined breeze. Mentally, you are a violent dog, unable to separate people from history or history from people, or you can, but you find yourself unable to act. You stand alert at the window, waiting, until you spy your neighbour leave their front door to water the plants on their patio. With eyes that look only towards death, you shout a warning of your intent towards them. Life, ah, the obscene mirror that's reflection blinds you and ends before you can see again. And they drop the watering can and screech back at you, telling you how they know that the life you choose to live is impossible and that they see you staring sometimes, weak and afraid, from your window. You tell them that you are not afraid of anything. You are a violent dog who is capable of anything, violent, non-violent, or otherwise, and you lean out of your window to emphasize it. Your neighbor is a bit shocked, but has seen you at home, watching TV, enjoying loud music. They've heard you hoover. You want to kill your neighbor so badly. The instinct is right there, so you withdraw your body back through the window and into the house. Back from the field and into your home, where you put on a film that you ignore, too angry to concentrate. You'll get them next time. The next night dream is called Ice Cream Manifesto. Cue impatiently. Tut. Block the door, crossing and uncrossing your arms. It will be your turn soon, and the wait will be over. The person in front of you is placing a huge order, massive, so much that you watch for ages as the server fills tub after tub, packing them away into bags. Another colleague serving another customer senses your acceptance and offers you a sample, which you turn down because you've just brushed your teeth. You watch greedily, The quality of their ingredients always draws you into the shop. Still, the person next to you keeps adding to their order. The customer gestures away from the freezer, towards the server's face. A tiny bit off the front, please. So they wash the metal scoop off in water and raise it to their face. Carefully taking off a tiny bit of the end of their nose and adding it to the polystyrene tub. The customer's phone rings, and they gesture for a moment to answer. Mouthing, my wife. The customer makes it clear that she doesn't understand, and wants to rush him. Yes, I'm in the ice cream shop, by the butchers. I'm almost done, I'll find you in a minute. Right, thanks. Two fingers, please. My wife hates them, but I love crunching on the knuckles. So the server puts down the scoop and picks up a large blunt knife, which they hold above their outstretched hand. Just the small ones, he says, gleeful, licking the inside of his lips. Obliging, they bring the knife down and add the two fingers to the tub. That should do nicely. Oh, one more thing. No, two. 
One big scoop of stomach and an eye. Picking the scoop up, the server finishes the order. Don't need a bag, thanks. I've got one here. Though this one has fish in it, so you know what, I will take a small bag. And the server passes them the bags. The customer taps their card on the reader and leaves with the bags. Finally, the server nods towards you. It's your turn. You are keen to prove that you're less indulgent than the man before, but you're still keen to impress that you know your stuff. You've been before. You came here expecting the best. Give me a rib. No, heart. And the server's eye flashes towards the clock on the wall before they rinse off the paddle and take a big scoop out of their chest. Anything else today? No, just that. Unless you can recommend anything. And the server tells you that the heart is tasting great at the moment, before wrapping it up for you. Reaching into your pocket, you make a sudden noise of regret. Do you have any paper bags? The last nightdream of the episode is called Heavy and Still Manifesto. You are on holiday and walk into a town that is completely empty. You enter the square in the middle of the town, expecting to see somebody but it is just you, standing opposite a huge church, completely still, unmoving. You decide to enter the church, careful at first, completely aware of your own presence. You walk over the huge stone floor tiles, some carved like tombstones. Their size gives them weight. The difficulty of everything in the room is staggering, unavoidable, vast and overpowering. You look up at the vast ceiling, the windows. Ideology moved the stones, and you feel the urgent need to be somewhere smaller. So you follow plastic arrows to a stairwell that you begin to climb. The noise of your steps reverberates, bringing you to the present. The noise of your breathing bounces against the walls, giving back some of yourself that the vast old building had taken from you. By the time you reach the top of the tower, you feel like yourself again, and are relieved to look out from the top, over the wall of the open tower, and to see people, sitting, cleaning tables, walking dogs, wearing bright clothes and trainers. The church stands under you, empty, a monument to what has passed, an idea made to last, light, free of actions, a monument to what has passed. An idea made to be lasting. Light, free of the actions of others and their burdens, you decide to leave. You climb back down the stairs, and a statue catches your eye from an alcove. It is a person like you, with a name that you can't make out. A hollow person in an empty room.